From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, episode 17. I could have been a contender. So hello and welcome to episode 17. My name is Stephen Conway. And I'm David Colson. And welcome to The Spiel. This is a show about games and the people who love them. We're here to show you how to have the widest variety of fun with the widest variety of games out there. And man, there are a ton of them. <laughs> yeah, definitely too many for us. to. We found out that there's like, what, 50 we want this week and we can only afford like two? Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> so this episode, we've got some some runners up. Uh, both of the games that we're going to um, play off of the list tonight are games that were runners up for the prestigious Spiel de Jahr, um, the, the giant German Game of the Year award. So um, these games are definitely worth worth your attention, and, and I'm excited to At least to the Germans think they're... <laughs> Quasi cream of the crop. Yeah. So. <laughs> we'll let you decide for yourself. Game news and notes. So I've got some information tonight about a game that's near and dear to Stephen and I's hearts. Oh, yes. This information is going to uh, make some of you ecstatic. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's going to frustrate the hell out of the rest of you. <laughs> Um, about a week and a half ago, Rio Grande announced that they were going to publish a limited print run of Carcassonne, the big box. What this is, is it is exactly what it says it is. It's a big box that contains Carcassonne with the river expansion and the four big expansions, which were Ends and Cathedrals, Traders and Builders, Princess and Dragon, and the Tower, all in one box. Sort of an omnibus edition. Exactly. Um, the retail for these games by themselves, if you were to have bought it, purchased them individually, mm-hmm. $90. If you buy them in the big box, it's $70. Oh, ouch. If you go to ThoughtHammer.com right now, it's $45. Oh, man. That's at cost. So anybody out there who does not own Carcassonne and the expansions, turn your iPods off now <laughs> and go buy this. There's no excuse not yes, to own this. Yes. We will hunt you down and slap your wrists if you don't go buy this right now. (laughs) Insane. So if you need other reasons to go buy this, um, the box that this comes in, each expansion has its own slot in the box designed specifically for that expansion. There's a reference sheet that tells you where to always put the tiles. The tiles have little symbols on them so you know exactly what sets they come from. The rules have been all... All the rules are one core set of rules that are actually expanded to show the interaction between all oh, of wow. the different expansions. That is so it's helpful. <laughs> insane how cool this is. And obviously you know why some of us are frustrated because some of us already own them all and have crammed 
all the components from all these expansions into one or two or three of the little boxes. I honestly don't know how you've gotten all yours smushed into as small a space as you do, because I think I still have mine in like three different boxes, because I can't smush them all together the way you do. Yeah, it's it's insane. I will let everybody know that, of course, immediately, I've already contacted Jay Tummelson from Rio Grande Games to ask him, please, is there any way that for a small price or something that we can get people who have purchased them all already, can we get this empty box? Surprisingly... With the inserts, you mean. Ex- exactly, with the inserts, exactly. Surprisingly, he said this is something he's thought about. Unfortunately, <laughs> he hasn't been able to convince distributors that this is actually a marketable item. So we're going to... Ask all the Spiel listeners out there. <laughs> We're going to <laughs> enlist the power of the Spiel here to exactly. see if we can make this happen. If you own Carcassonne and its expansions, you want this, send Jay at Rio Grande an email. The um, email over there is riogames at AOL.com. Just send him a short, quick email and tell him that, yes, this is something that would interest you. You know, if you're somebody that is has a website or is in a blog, let everybody that you know, no, because we know there's millions of copies of this game out there. Yeah. So there has to be people other than Steven and I who would love to have this big box and this way to organize all this stuff. Well, and it seems crazy to punish people who have supported your game to the point where they they can actually afford to make this omnibus edition. I mean, if it wasn't so popular, there'd be no reason to actually make this this nice big set for everybody. So don't right. don't punish the people who have actually brought you this success. Actually, give them a break, and you know. We don't, you know, we already own the game, but it'd be nice to have that the ability to right. kind of store it all nicely. It, it seems like Jay's email was just kind of, seems like he wanted to do that very thing, but he couldn't commit to it mm-hmm. unless he had valid <laughs> reason. So hopefully we can all give him a valid reason. Yeah, yeah. So so definitely email him if, if that sounds like something you'd be interested in. And hey, mention the spiel to him too so that he exactly. knows that, that we have rallied our troops <laughs> in support. <laughs> So I'll be sending my email later tonight. Then. Cool. <laughs> so uh, my uh, news for news and notes is a new game from Z-Man Games called Midgard. It's supposed to be out December 2006. I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> they don't. They list it on many of the retail sites, but they have no dates or anything. The only date I could find was a provisional December date, so don't hold them or me to that. Uh, it was designed by Eric Lang. Z-Man Games is the publisher. Looks like it's going to be a three to five player game. How can you go wrong with a game about mythical Viking heroes battling in the uh, battle to end all battles, Ragnarok? <laughs> <laughs> So here's a little flavor text about the game. Um, The world of men called Midgard is in its final days, and the battle at the end of the world called Ragnarok has begun. Those warriors brave enough to fight to the end will have a hallowed place in the halls of Valhalla when the battle is over, but only one clan will hold the seat of highest honor. Will it be yours? So it's basically a strategic board game of kingdom control. Um, the interesting thing is it's a card drafting game. The board is made up of different mythical regions that are uh, figure prominently in Norse mythology, and you you do these series of card drafts to try to control different areas of the kingdom. The cool part, I think, is that different kingdoms by the end game are going to become the sort of battleground for Ragnarok, the the final battle, and they're just going to get totally obliterated. 
by the battle. <laughs> so it, you want to you want to try to control places, but you want to try to make sure that the places you control aren't the ones that get completely wiped right. off the map. In mm. other words, they're a little sketchy on a lot of the details. Of course, Dave, I thought of you instantly when I saw that the game comes not only with you know full color board and all those things, but fifty five wooden Viking pawns. <gasps> so. <laughs> <laughs> I knew, being the goober whore that he is, that that would definitely Sweet. interest him. So look for uh, Midgard coming out, if not the end of this year, probably sometime next year. It's definitely uh, definitely on my list of, of things to get. Sounds fun. I'm a, I'm a sucker for Viking anything, <laughs> so <laughs> check it out. The List Over a decade ago, we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection, each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100 and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. So this week on the list, we have two runners-up games. Like we mentioned, they were both runners-up for this year's Spiel DR uh, 2006. The winner, of course, was... Uh, Third and Taxis. Third and ta- I almost said Kalis, but I knew that wasn't <laughs> right. Uh, Third and Taxis uh, was the winner, which we played uh, not two episodes ago. A couple episodes, right. Three episodes ago. Um, so the, the other cool thing about both these games is I would consider them both gateway games. And I guess that's probably true of all the Spiel de Jar games. I think that's games right, exactly. That, you know, they're games, great games to introduce people to these kind of off-the-beaten-path games, but, but they're not so heavy that they're going to off-put a lot of people. You could sit down and play them with your family, in other words, and most of the people are going to be able to get the rules. They're not super intense, but yet a great sort of slippery slope towards those more <laughs> intense kind of games. So the first one um, on the list tonight is Buccaneer, um, which is Sea Rauber in the German title. Uh, it was published this year, 2006. Um, the designer is Stefan Dora, um, who you might know also from uh, Medina, um, or my favorite of his games, uh, The Bucket King, yeah. <laughs> which I think is just wacky-ass theme. themed but... <laughs> game on the planet, but a great game. But a great game. Published, uh, Buccaneer is published by Queen Games and Rio Grande Games here in America. Um, three to five players about 30 minutes, probably way faster than that, I think, once you under, once you kind of get the rules. Um, and you can find it online for around $16. So uh, here we go with a little description of, of Buccaneer. Arr! If you be looking for a good rum and pretzels pirate game, matey, you don't have to sail to Tampa Bay to find a good Buccaneer. I'll stop now. <laughs> I was going to do the entire thing that way, but I have pity on you all. <laughs> so in Buccaneer... You control a group of pirates in search of gold and booty. Your pirates are represented by five wooden discs numbered two through five plus one wooden uh, one mystery pirate disc. Um, there are three ships full of, full of plunder that are played into the center of the table for all the scallywags to drool over. Each ship shows the amount of gold and other booty tokens that will be awarded when that ship is taken. In addition, the cards show a number of pirates that are needed to take that ship. Now, you only have two choices on any given turn. You can either recruit more pirates to your crew, or you can board one of the one of the treasure ships that's out on the table. To recruit more pirates to your crew, you take one of your wooden discs, and you stack it on top of one of your opponent's pirate discs, thereby sort of shanghaiing him into your crew. Um, as the game progresses, 
Each player will have stacks of pirates of various sizes and various color combinations. So in other words, you can recruit a single pirate or a whole stack of pirates once the game gets going. The only restriction to recruiting is any single stack can never be larger than nine discs high. Once your stacks begin to match or exceed the requirements on those ships cards that are in the middle, you then have to choose between whether you want to keep recruiting people or you want to try to take one of the ships. When you take a ship, however, this is where it starts to get a little interesting, <laughs> you have to share all the loot amongst all the pirates that are in your stack. So the player with the topmost pirate in the stack um, will get the first choice of any one booty token that's on the ship, and the pirate one beneath the top will get the second booty token if there is one. The booty tokens um, are worth large amounts of points at the end of the game, so you want to collect the most of a particular kind uh, in order to score that bonus. Um, the numbers on each pirate's um, in each player's stack are added together, and each player is paid that amount of money from the ship's treasury. So, if Dave, for instance, decided to take a ship worth ten doubloons, and I had two pirates in his stack that were, let's say, worth two and three, he would have to pay me five out of the the ship's treasury, and he would get whatever remains. Now, here's where it'd be getting really interesting. <laughs> uh, if the ship doesn't have enough gold to pay all of the crew, then the captain who takes the ship has to pay all of his crew out of his own pocket. Um, so the interesting little wrinkle here is there can be mutinies Great. in the game. So mutinies can force another player to take a ship when they don't want to because they know they're going to have to pay this money out. If ever it occurs where you have a, a player with three pirates of the same color, if you have three of your pirates of the same color, um, but is not the top one, then you can force another player, you can declare mutiny, and make that player take a ship, and then all the, the stuff happens as normal, but you may end up forcing that pirate, end up paying you instead of right. getting anything in return. Um, after the first three ships are taken, more ships, three more ships are laid out, and this continues until all the ships in this little deck of ships are, have been taken by all the different pirates. Players then add up their golden booty, and the highest score wins. I think paired with loot, which is a game that we uh, discussed in episode right. 9, Buccaneer and a bottle of rum <laughs> would make for a great, light, fun game night and would be especially good for a gathering full of non-gamers with the whole gateway thing that we're talking about um, with these games. So there's a little overview of, of Buccaneer. Uh, let, let, let me have it here, Dave. What, what do you think? Well, first of all, first off, before we even get into the game... I'm always looking for a little booty, so <laughs> I love this game. <laughs> but uh, it, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's a great gate, gateway-style game, I think. I mean, it was. I like that it weighs... It kind of had a couple games working. It had a little bit of a memory type of thing, because you really needed to remember... I guess I didn't uh, emphasize the that other very people's well. Pirate, which pirates are in certain stacks, because you have to figure out, oh man, there's a 5 in there, a 4 in there, a 2 and a 3, that equals this, the boot, the payout on this ship is this, oh man, I'm going to be Owen. So mm -hmm. you're trying to remember all those. But and it's you, also, can't, you can't look underneath right, them, I didn't, exactly. I didn't emphasize that enough. I exactly, but also the risk-reward thing, you don't want somebody else to have that stack of pirates so they can board a ship and get the booty and stuff, by the same token... If you take it, if you actually put your pieces on top of that stack, then you have a larger stack, which means you have to pay yet more people. <laughs> so it's this risk-reward thing that you're like, oh, I can't let him do that, but 
I can't take it. Mm-hmm. So it's, I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I think the, I mean, to me, the cool strategy is you almost don't want to be the person to, well, I guess you want to take a few because you want those booty tokens because that right. definitely, they're, they're worth more doubloons than any single ship, I think, is pro- you're probably going to cash exactly. out at the end. And the, and the booty tokens are like, you know, the golden candelabra or a treasure <laughs> chest or things like that. Um, but you actually want to be in a position where you have lots of your kind of middle value pirates in the middle of somebody's crew so you know you're always going to get paid out you don't want to ever be in a situation where somebody you know the three other people playing or something cash out and you don't even have a single right. pirate in there so you want to kind of you have to have your hands in every single booty or right. even if it's for only a couple gold pieces <laughs> forget i said that <laughs> dave's all about keeping his fingers in the booty <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, the thing that I guess impressed me too is how fast it is once it gets going. I mean, you explained the game to us okay. in like five minutes and gosh, we had played through a couple games in a half an hour. So that's right. why I say when they say a half an hour playtime, I think once you really get familiar with the rules, you could easily play a couple rounds of this in, I had, in a I had short heard time. how good this game was. And so when I opened it and was preparing to read the rules, I was kind of, okay, here we go again. I read the rules first time five minutes. I mean, so not only were they short, but they were clear, concise. Um, it was just a pleasure because a yeah. lot of rules lately haven't been like that. So it was very easy to for one person to read and to convey to the other players in a very short amount of time, which is very important, I think, in a gateway game. Yes, um, yes, that you can you don't confuse someone. You know, if you can encapsulate the game in a short way like that, you're much more likely to get someone to sit down and at least try it. Right. And I think that's half the battle. If you get them to sit down and try it, they're going to get hooked on on games like this because they're not your typical style games. I think also. Because we did discuss loot, to me, I mean, it's not like I don't, I like loot any less, but given the choice between loot and Buccaneer, I think Buccaneer is a stronger game because it kind of has similar mechanics in loot. You have those ships in the middle that everyone's vying for with their ships of different strength, but just the mechanic that surrounds how you get it, it seems like there's a lot more interaction. I agree. In I Buccaneer. This was a stronger game, definitely. Um, loot is a great game, but I definitely felt that. This is stronger, and for anybody, anybody into collecting pirate games or just looking, yeah. Um, Why we were talking to a listener last episode yeah, about having Scotty. a pirate and cowboy thing, and boy, this was should be at the top of the list. Absolutely, of that style yeah. of, because it's so short too. I mean, you could play this added with uh, several other games. That, how many players did it accommodate? Up to five. Up to five, yeah. Yeah, it was a wonderful game. <laughs> definitely, definitely worthy of of mention by the Spiel Jar. You yep. can kind of see why they didn't win, but it, I'm glad that they were nominated to, right. to bring more attention to it. So uh, so what's next on the on the list here, Dave? Well, our second game off the list tonight is obviously another runner-up, um, Aqua Romana. It was co-published this year by Queen and Rio Grande Games. It was designed by Martin Schlegel. It's for two to four players, ages eight and up. List for $45. You can find it for between 30 and 36. Aqua Romana is a tile-laying board game that lets you recreate the construction of the great Roman aqueducts. Each player steps into the role of a building foreman. With the help of their builders and master builders, the foreman compete against each other to build the longest aqueducts. Only the longest aqueducts will be impressive enough to earn the foreman the fame that they seek. So give you a little insight, I'll kind of take you through the components and then maybe a game turn, and that should pretty much tell you how the game runs. Um, the, The components include a pretty nice board, 
not like huge by any means, but an average size board, kind of divided up into three or four sections. You have a large grid in the center, which you're going to actually play all your aqueduct tiles onto. Um, then encircling this grid is a track where your master builders are. They're kind of like the overseers that tell you what and where you can build. Um, and then you have a little scoring track over to the side. This scoring track is kind of unique in that there are a series of podiums that as you score your aqueducts, you're going to move your workers over there um, onto a, a podium that corresponds with the value of the aqueduct that you're scored. Exactly. Um, everybody starts on a reservoir tile. Um, they have three or four outlets to start aqueducts depending upon whether you're in a three-player game or a four-player game. Um, there's Everybody starts, once again, with three or four builders that actually start on these reservoirs. That, once again, depends on whether you're playing with three or four people. The little wooden worker guys that start on your reservoir, as you construct your aqueducts, they move along with that aqueduct. Um, and they're always standing at the edge that's getting ready to be built onto. They kind of go with the flow. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to have, obviously, the aqueduct tiles. They come in four flavors. you got straight, curved, double curves, and intersection. Um, it, it has a feel. I don't want to compare it to Carcassonne, but it's a tile lane game where you're matching up, obviously, the... Um, the canals have the to The canals, match. exactly. <laughs> So then we come to probably the most unique component of the game. In addition to being a unique component, I think it's what makes it's what adds to a very unique mechanic of the game, um, and that's the master builders. These are wooden figures, maybe an inch and a half tall. They're big, something like that. They're pretty hefty. They resemble kind of an outline of a of a man holding a map. I I equate it with he's holding the blueprints to certain things because the game comes with a, a sheet of stickers and you actually affix these stickers to these wooden pieces and the stickers actually match the aqueduct tiles. So you've got a sticker that's a straight sticker or a curved sticker. Once affixed to the master builder, you've actually got a master builder that's running in that little circle around the main grid saying, hey, if you can see me, you can put I've, down that. Yeah, kind of tile. I've got the blueprints for this, and you can build that. So it's it's pretty freaky. Um, so we'll go over a turn real quick before we start talking. Turns are pretty easy because what you're attempting to do is quite simply extending one of your aqueducts by a, a tile or a space. And the way you do this, if we kind of hinted at it earlier, um, you have your little worker, and what he does is he looks, he checks his line of sight to the left, to the right above and below. And if he can see one of those master workers, then he can build that type of a tile. If he can see more than one, then he's got some options to work with, and he can build one or more types of tiles. Um, basically, the other cool thing is, um, once you actually make a move, the master builder that you choose to build a tile of his type, if that makes any sense, then the master builders then moved one space counterclockwise. So the master builders are constantly roaming around the outside of that main building grid, which is pretty freaky. Yeah, that's cool. Um, after you've laid a tile, then you determine whether any aqueducts were closed off. And they can be closed off for any number of reasons. It can simply <laughs> just run into the edge of the board, and obviously it can't go any further. It could be actually blocked by somebody else laying an aqueduct tile that blocks it off. Or you can just decide, you know what, this is the right time for me to close this aqueduct, and I would like to score those points, so you just do it. Or if you're dumb like me and you don't plan ahead, <laughs> you end up closing one without even realizing you're closing it. <laughs> exactly. So once you determine whether you have 
aqueducts that have been closed and you score them. Now comes those in the podiums that we talked about. This is one, I think it's a pretty unique, neat thing. Let's um, You score a number of points equal to the number of tiles that are in the aqueduct that you're scoring. So let's say you've got an aqueduct that's five tiles. You would just remove your little wooden worker guy that was out on the aqueduct and place him on the number five, um, the little scoring podium. podium. And the majority of the podiums, with a couple exceptions, can only accommodate one worker. So if Steven closes an aqueduct for five points, I turn around two turns later and close an aqueduct for five points. I can no longer score five points. I'm forced to drop down to four. Or if that's occupied, maybe even three or two. So the later it goes in the game, right. the more podiums are filled, and the more likely it is that you may you know, you might score nine, but you may <laughs> only get the two podium because exactly. all the other ones are taken up. So that's why they let you choose to close aqueducts because you might see, oh, if I don't close this and score this now, I'm gonna instead of nine points, I'm gonna get two, which is there's a couple that allow two. I think the three and the seven or something yeah. wacky allow two people to fit on there. But uh, that's basically, you're just, the whole course of the game is extending your, you know, three to four aqueducts in an attempt to earn the highest, you know, podiums that you possibly can. The game ends when um, a whole round goes by without having any players having placed a tile. At that point, you, you total the uh, points that are on the podiums underneath your workers and highest score wins. Yeah. You know, it's um, it wasn't really too hard. Um, I'll let Stephen take over here and kind yeah. of give us your feeling for. I thought, I mean, I enjoyed it. I the one, my one, I guess, disappointment was that if you're gonna kind of call it Aqua Romana, I I kind of expect that theme to kind of carry through into the game in some respect, and I didn't think. Um, there wasn't anything wrong with the mechanic, and I thought the game really kind of played nicely. It remind you know it's kind of a pipeline right. style game, but with a, with some interesting twists. The little uh, uh, master builders rotating around and trying to figure out how to line up your workers so that you always have the the master builder in an area where you actually have a worker lined up. That that that's the real meat of the game to me, right. and I thought that was that was really strong. But I would have liked to have seen them actually implement the theme. You know, if you're going to do this sort of ancient Roman thing, to me, the theme just felt totally pasted on. I didn't it was. Think, I didn't <laughs> think that there was anything about the game. It could have been a completely abstract strategy game with, like, little lines and circuits. And there wouldn't have been any difference in the way the game played. And if you're going to choose to give it that theme, you better darn well actually incorporate that into the game or it's definitely going to make I me agree, a little totally. annoyed. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. And... Yeah, before, we do have to say that I think this is one that you will probably need to play a second or a third time. Yes. We only played it once, and it was rather evident. <laughs> some early mistakes that we yes. made were evident, you know, after not too long. You start with, what, three builders, and um, my first builder was off the board on, like, turn three because I just really hosed, unintentionally hosed myself right. by having all the curve pieces and had one of my aqueducts just immediately curve back into one of my other canals and that was all she wrote and I ended up getting one point for one of them so I will plead <laughs> dumbness I was, on, I was, on that but uh, go I, ahead. <laughs> I was kind of hoping for slightly more control that I, I enjoy games that are that have a random element to them as much as I enjoy you know heavy um, strategic games. Yeah. But this game seemed to be coming across as a game that was going to be a little deeper, and I felt that um, you had a little less control than you you really needed. 
Mm-hmm. You know, with those, it was really tough to get those master builders in any type of order where you had any type of control. When it came to your turn, it was pretty much look left, right, up, down. And boy, if there was a curve piece, that's what you were taking. You yeah. know, and it was, it, there was some strategy to it. Obviously, we found out because we screwed up early on. Right. And when we play a second game, we'll obviously be much better at it. But I still felt that it was a little too random for the theme and kind of how the game was pitched. Yes. I felt like it was going to be a little heavier. Yeah, I would totally agree with the the having little control. And a lot of these games, you feel like when it's not your turn and you're watching other people take their turns, you can still be kind of thinking and strategizing about, oh, well, I can see my possible moves. I felt like in this game, until it was actually your turn and you kind of saw the layout of the board, there was almost no point to sitting back and kind of wringing your hands and worrying about how things were going to turn out because you really had no idea as to how the board was going to look. Um, I guess the one other thing, did you mention when you move a master builder, if the next spot is occupied, then that master builder jumps over several, so you can end up the board. The the real strategy is in how you manipulate those master Absolutely. builders around the board. And because you know a guy who can be five or six or eight spaces back can suddenly jump up, into a spot where he can be used and you don't have any control over that, the board can look very different from, you know, one turn to one turn, which is cool right. cool in a way, but it also adds to the fact that you just can't control many of those right. things. The other thing that I kept having a hard time, and I know you had a hard time with this too, is you keep oh. I keep wanting to look at you have to look at where your builder is for his line of sight, not where he's going to, to build. be. Exactly. And I screwed myself over so many times. I think to me, that's where the real strategy and the real sort of brain busting part of it, if you can say that about this game, right. is in how you manipulate the initial setup of the master builders. Right. And I definitely agree in successive plays, I think we'll pay a lot more attention. We just kind of puked them out onto the board <laughs> and didn't really pay as much close attention to that as maybe we should have. Exactly. Um, but. You know, I I sort of am left with kind of a meh about yeah. this game. I didn't I didn't dislike no, it no, I, at all, but it, it might have been that I was just too stoked about it from the get go because it just really looked like it was going to be, you know, one of the mo- more unique things I've played in a while, and it it didn't quite come off as as unique as it seemed like it was going to be. Another thing I want to mention is we said before in Buccaneer that what we think is important in a gateway game are the simplicity and conciseness of the rules. Well, these are anything but that. (laughs) These rules have a myriad of errors um, to the point to where the errors actually make the rules completely incorrect. Luckily, in today's age, we can just jump on BoardGameGeek.com and find the corrections but out of the box, if you were to read these rules, you're absolutely going to play the game wrong. <laughs> because, there, I mean, there are sentences back-to-back that contradict each other. Yeah, absolutely. Which, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> I even went to the Queen site hoping to find some information, and all they have up there is this exact PDF file of these horrible <laughs> Incorrect rules. rules, yeah. Right. <laughs> they just need a better translator, I think, right. <laughs> is what it comes but, down but to. But it's still after dissing it that much it still has its place in those family yeah. gateway type of games because once it, you actually get to the rules and understand the the basic concepts of it right it fits it definitely fits that definition i think right i wouldn't wouldn't go out of my way to run out and buy this if you were a gamer 
you know, looking for a, you know, just because it was on the a Spiel des Jahres yeah. nominee. But, you know, if you've got if you've got a family, you know, with some kids and stuff, this, I think this would be great. And like I said, fairness, if we play this a, a second or a third or a fourth time, we, we may we might appeal have a little, our... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'll withhold judgment. I mean, I, I like I said, I don't hate it or anything. Right. But I think there are other games that have the qualities that this game has have and right. are better don't have the weaknesses that exactly. this one has so just a simple game i can't if, remember who did it but metro yeah comes to absolutely. mind you know and i really can't remember the author but <laughs> we'll put painful. it in the show notes exactly. that's what the show notes are for <laughs> <laughs> but so that that was game number two off the list aqua romana um like we say spiel dr nominee cool game just quite didn't hit us the way we were hoping it would back shelf spotlight these games need some love, and we're going to give it to them. The Back Shelf Spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So, uh, we have... The Backshelf Spotlight Connection Contest to deal with from last week's episode. The games were Hare and Tortoise and the Queen's Necklace. And as always, there are there is at least one random oddball connection <laughs> <laughs> that we come up with between these games. And it's up to you all out there to figure out if you can get into our heads and uh, figure out just what that connection is. Well, apparently, this connection wasn't random enough. <laughs> Because we did have several people yeah. who managed to figure the connection out. Yeah, we Now, had a- before we let on to what the correct connection is, <laughs> I know we have some uh, non-correct... <laughs> some noteworthy exactly. but wrong <laughs> guesses that we wanted to, to just shout out to. Um, we've got... We had a lot of people, including Ankaboot, Scotty, and John, who guessed uh, that both games appear to be kiddish or girly games, but they're really more than that. Well, yes, that's true, but we actually said that in the back shelf spotlight, so you gotta you gotta go a little <laughs> deeper than that. Come on, <laughs> um, John uh, sent us a great quote from the designer Dirk Hen, who um, John writes, um, "I love Dirk's quote. Quote: Sure, Hare and Tortoise is a kids game for Vulcan kids, <laughs> which I think is hilarious because that, that's that's, that's, that's totally true. <laughs> um, and lastly, Dave, not this Dave, but another Dave, listener Dave, uh, cracked me up with his guess that neither game designer was able to vote in the elections in Wisconsin. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> which, yes, Dave, that's, that's true. true. But <laughs> does it make you a winner? <laughs> Seek help, Dave. <laughs> exactly. I think we might have to have a new... Uh, yeah, little competition here. <laughs> Honorable mention on the uh, goofiest, <laughs> wackiest, <yeah>. fake connection. <laughs> You're not going to win any prizes, but uh, you will win our our yeah. ridicule. That's Guar- worth something. If, if you want to guarantee <laughs> to have something mentioned on this spiel, just uh, make a connection that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> and we'll we'll be sure to give you your five seconds of fame, <laughs> exactly. If you want to call it that. So we're do- kind of doing something a little new this time. Yes. Instead of having predetermined the winner, we're actually going to do it live. On air. Woo-hoo! So I have got, yes, a hat. <laughs> and it's got all the winners in it. And I'm going to shake them up, dangle it over Stephen's head, and he's going to reach in and grab the winner. The winner for the fabulous prize 
which here we go. Okay, here I'm, we go. I'm Drum reaching, roll. I'm reaching in. I've got a name in my hand. The winner for this week's Backshelf Spotlight is Robin Goodall. Woohoo! From the United Kingdom. Congratulations, Robin. You have won. I'm even going to roll them here. You hear that? I have ah. them. I have them in my hands. You have won yourself a pair of Spiel dice. So we'll be getting in contact with you, Robin, to get your uh, your address and mail these dice off to you. So congratulations. Um, I'll hopefully have pictures up. It may be a little bit longer because <laughs> there was a little printing error on one of the dice. Our website address is wrong. So it may be another week or two before they actually go out because we have the dice, but... They're wrong, so I have to wait for the new set of dice to come in before I can actually mail them to you, but congratulations. And, awesome. Uh, golf applause. Golf, golf clap. <laughs> and and he's worthy of, of winning since he's had As- some very good guesses in, in recent uh, weeks, so congratulations. Remember, if you want to win... We're, we play this connection every week, so the games that we're going to discuss uh, right now have a connection between the two of them. Of course, we have to discuss what the actual winning connection was. We haven't even mentioned what the winning connection is. Oh, yeah, that is. might be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, since you were the culprit behind this uh, connection, I think you should tell everybody what the connection between oh. hair and tortoise Unf- and queen's necklace Unfortunately, is. it turned out to be quite obvious because so many people guessed it, but the connection was, in fact, that both games have... Carrots, obviously, carrots the vegetable, and carrots the measure of the weight of the diamond. <laughs> Pretty simple. Obviously, it was too easy. Next time, you all pay. <laughs> <laughs> so on to this week's. Cool. So the uh, this week, the first game in the spotlight, one of my all time favorites. I don't know why I'm so attached to this game, <laughs> but I love it. Titan the Arena. It was published by Avalon Hill in 1997, designed by Rainer Knizia. It's for two to five players, ages 10 and up. Unfortunately, it's out of print. However, there are a couple game companies that have newer versions of this game. Fantasy Flight currently has um, one called Colossal Arena, and GMT Games has one called Galaxy the Dark Ages. These are, in fact, very similar to Titan the Arena, just not exactly the same. Um, you can find these online for between 13 and 15 bucks. I still prefer the original, but... Obviously, you can't get that anymore, so if you need your fix, if this sounds cool when we're done with this one, go out and look up Colossal Arena or Galaxy of the Dark Ages. So Titan Arena is often confused with its namesake Titan, (laughs) which I must say that for some time I was actually confusing it with Titan, which was another board game from Avalon Hill. It's a classic. That is a classic great game. The only thing they share in common is they both deal with fantasy monsters after that Nothing in common, exactly. So don't confuse this. This is, in fact, its own thing, Titan the Arena. Um, Titan the Arena also is, it's really cool, it's a reworking of an earlier Rainer game called Grand National Derby. And I say earlier, but it was only a year before (laughs) Titan the Arena came out, so I don't know why that quick turnaround. (laughs) And they went from horse races to (laughs) fantasy monsters. (laughs) Exactly. But I, I love it as the Monster Bash, so... Um, give you a little insight to the game. Um, basically, thematically, the game is that there's a group of eight creatures, and they're all thrown in this arena to have this huge big fight. And at the end of it, only three are going to come out smelling like roses. <laughs> one by one, they're all going to be picked off and heaved out of the game. And through the course of the game, you are hopefully will have bet, or what they call backed, the monsters that eventually are in the top three places. 
Um, the, the way that this is done is imagine the monsters laid out in a single row, and on your turn, you're going to play a power card below one of the monsters. Um, the power cards have numbers. I'm gonna remember. I'm not gonna remember this from zero to ten. Yeah, that, on them. Right. And when you get to the point to where every one of the monsters has a card below it, then the monster with the lowest card is eliminated from this round of play. And so at the start of the game, there's eight monsters. When you move on to round two, obviously now there's only seven. So after five rounds, you get down to three. Through the course of the game, you're allowed to make bets on which monsters you think will actually make it to that final three. The bets that you place early in the game are worth more because obviously the odds are, the odds are much greater. <laughs> you have no idea which three of the five, but obviously as you get to round you know, three or four, you're down to four or five monsters and you have a good idea yeah. who, who's going <laughs> to win. Um, I also enjoy some of the cards in this game. Um, they're spectators. In, in <laughs> game right. turns... In game terms, they're wild cards. But thematically, I love the fact that they're these out-of-control spectators who, you know, their favorite monster is not doing well, and they just <laughs> jump into the arena and try to help, you know, help out. I just think that's funny as hell. But uh, then you have the referees. There's these, like, I think two or three referee cards, right. and they kind of allow you some special things. Um, one of the bets that you make early on can be a secret bet, and the referee allows, forces you to actually make somebody reveal one of their <laughs> secret bets. I think that's pretty cool. Um, to me, it's just a classic game. It's very simple. These original Avalon Hill rules suffer once again. They weren't super easy to read. But with the Geek, you can easily figure out how to play this yeah. game if you can find a used copy. But I, I like the simplistic artwork. It's nothing fancy. You know, it's just really easy. But there's something about this game, just the monsters beating the hell yeah. out of each other that... Gets my goat. I have no idea. <laughs> in in my mind, whenever I play this game, I always think of you know the music from Star Trek where he's fighting the Exactly. I always think of that in my back in Absolutely. my mind. <laughs> just these monsters just beating the crap That's out the of each other. The only thing they're missing is a Gorn. Yeah, you need to have exactly. a Gorn in there. Damn it. Exactly. <laughs> but to me, I don't know why, but that's that. I totally agree. It just has a charm and an appeal that, in some ways, is kind of un quantifiable but it's right. just a i maybe it's because i've played it since i was a kid maybe that's right. part of this nostalgia maybe a right. little bit but but i still think it stands on its own merits too i think it's a, a nice it's, game it's fun every time every time i hear somebody hasn't played it i'm like oh you gotta be kidding me yeah <laughs> you know and i think almost everybody that's ever played it has walked away going wow that was pretty damn fun yeah <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first first game in our spotlight tight in the arena if it sounds cool look it up yep. remember it has a connection to Acquire. Excuse me? Yep. <laughs> it has a connection to Acquire, which was published originally in 1962. Sid Saxon, the Grandmaster game designer. Avalon Hill is the original publisher. Uh, Avalon Hill slash Hasbro, I suppose now, is the... Monopoly the, of Hell. Uh, copyright <laughs> holder. Um, two to six players. It's currently out of print, I think, in its current incarnation. There are copies available on eBay. The weird thing I discovered is that the like newer version is like stupidly expensive on eBay, but, but the older can. editions you can find for way cheaper. And it's the exact same. It's one of the few games that Hasbro got their clutches on that they didn't dumb down or really right. mess with in any way. So you're not really getting a different game if you buy the new one as opposed to the old one. But the old one's actually cheaper. They're all out of print, but I would go for the old one if you, you were looking same, for a deal because it's game. the same damn game. I got my older copy. 
on eBay yeah. of, of that. I was surprised I paid less than... Yeah. No, amazing. <laughs> so, a little bit about the game. This Sid Saxon classic has taken many different forms over the years, depending upon the publisher. Each player strategically invests in businesses, trying to retain a majority of stock. As the businesses grow with the tile placements on the board, they'll also start to merge, giving the majority stockholders of the acquired businesses sizable bonuses, which can then be used to reinvest in other chains. Uh, all the investors in the acquired companies can cash in their stocks for a current value or trade them for two-for-one shares of the newer, larger businesses. The game is a race, basically, to acquire the most wealth. Um, acquire is often referred to as Monopoly on Steroids, <laughs> which I don't think is a very accurate description of the mechanic of the game, but it makes sense why people use the analogy. Right. It's a way of countering the resistance to trying something new. It goes back to the whole gateway, gateway game. Everyone, well, almost everyone, has played Monopoly. So if you can hook up, a, hook up a new player by showing them how it is like a game they're already familiar with, then you might get them to sit down and give it a whirl. You hook somebody on a game like Acquire, and it's a short journey to Chinatown and then maybe to Puerto Rico. <laughs> right. So I can see why you know it has that reputation, but I think in practice, it really doesn't play anything like Monopoly, other than, yes, you're buying stocks, and it, and it is a most money wins. Right. But to me, it's so elegantly simple. I mean, yes, I mean, Monopoly is a sort of roll-and-move game, but this game is only like one step removed from that in terms of the elegance and simplicity of the rules, and yet it has so much more strategy and thought involved that, you know, given the choice, anybody who's played both games, you'd be crazy not to pick Acquire over over Monopoly in terms of just the challenge, but yet you could teach anybody how to play in four or five minutes because it's not that much more complicated than than some of these classic games. I just can't believe that this is out of print. Yeah, yeah, that's it's outrageous, actually, yeah. It just makes no sense. One of the best games... I mean, the remake, when they remade it, just like you said, it's one thing that they didn't change, one game they didn't change that much. The um, components were vastly improved over the original 3M. The game is awesome. Why it's not in print? People, every day I talk to people who are like, man, I still wish I had, I wish I had a copy of that. I wish you could buy it. Yeah, yeah. You know. So if you're listening out there, bring it back into print. Exactly. <laughs> So, again, remember, the two games for this week's Backshelf Spotlight are Acquire and... Tighten the Arena. So there's a connection between the two of them, and we, we want your emails at stephen at thespiel.net. Or dave at thespiel.net. And remember, of course, our website is thespiel.net. Truckloads of Goober. What is Goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff, the Goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great Goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great Goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the Goobermeisters have for us this week. Okay, the Goober for this episode, I know you've all been waiting for it, is Sid Meier's Civilization, the board game. Everybody out there is probably going, it's about damn time. (laughs) How could this game not be on the Goober? Because it is up there as the king of, one of the kings of Goober. (laughs) 
So before I get into it, um, this was published in 2002 by Eagle Games, designed by Glenn Drover. It's for two to six players, ages 10 and up. It listed for 60 bucks. Unfortunately, it's out of print because, as we all know, Eagle went belly up, <sighs> yes. and nobody has, as of yet, they're not reprinting. There's no other companies reprinting their stuff. The good news is, if you really want this, I found many copies online for between like 25 bucks and 75 bucks. There's a lot of inventory left yeah. in people's stores. So. so not hard to get as of yet. Um, a little minuscule amount of history on this puppy so you, you understand where this game is coming from because this is one of those full circle kind of whack yeah. histories. <laughs> um, Civilization started out as a classic board game from Avalon Hill in 1981, and I think it's kind of the benchmark to what all um, epic Civilization-type games are compared to now. It's just the classic, amazing game. It can be long, and when I when I say long, I don't mean two or three hours. I mean six, seven, <laughs> eight, nine. It can be insane. Geologic year. <laughs> yeah, you measure it in, in epochs. <laughs> exactly. So that was in 81. A jump ahead 10 years to 91, they come out with advanced civilization, as if there wasn't enough of it. They have advanced civilization. And then, surprisingly, here's where the twist comes. In that same year, Microprose puts out Sid Meier's Civilization, the PC game, which has a huge following and over the course of the years has gone through four, five, six different versions, four of them. Yeah, Civ 4 is the current. Exactly. So it's, and then, Bring us, obviously, to 2002, where Glenn Drover, go figure, decides he can ba make a board game based off of the PC game that was originally based off the board game. Yeah, <laughs> or at least inspired Exa by inspired, it, very exactly. heavily inspired by exactly. it. Exactly, and I think that this game, the, the game we're talking about, Sid Meier's Civilization, kind of has a love-hate thing working. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of people who were fans of the PC game are absolutely love this board game, poured it over, because it brings a lot of the th things that are similar to the PC game, whereas it really can't be compared to the original board game back you know, back from Avalon Hill, because they're two different monsters. Yes, apples and oranges. E exactly. So um, I already talked to Stephen about this early, and I think we're not going to mention a lot about this now, because in the summer we are going to make ourselves sit down and play Civilization and or advanced civilization. Definitely advanced. And then, within a few days, we're going to sit down and play Sid Meier's Civilization, the board game, <laughs> so we can get a feel, a good feel for the differences between these games and why yeah. we like and dislike both of them. So. I'm, a, I'm definitely a huge fan of the original Civilization, and that's that's one of those those black marks on Dave's gamer <laughs> gamer badge that he has not played Advanced uh, Civilization or Civilization, so I, we, we have to fix that. That has to be fixed, I and can't soon. wait. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a little, very short introduction um, that was written by Glenn Drover. Um, you are about to lead your people through millennia and into the future. Diplomacy, war, economic growth, and technological development are the tools at your disposal. Maintain a balance of the four and see your subjects prosper. Fail, and your civilization will be covered by the dust of the ages. <laughs> Just give you a little fun. Flavor. Exactly. Now, to the meat, why this is on the goober list. We're going to start off with counters. Over 150 counters. You've got exploration counters and coin markers. Number two... A gargantuan, huge game board. <laughs> yeah. 36 inches by 46 inches. Most people don't have a table big enough to play this game on. This game is almost taller than me. It's insane. <laughs> and he's not lying. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, number three, over 200 cards. You've got technology cards, wonder cards, city cards, city improvement cards, tons of cards. And now to number four. <laughs> the reason why this has to be on the Goober list. Drum roll, please. <laughs> Nearly 800 plastic <laughs> miniatures. That is crazy. Representing your settlements, your military units, your settlers, your flag bearers. It's insane. If you can find a copy of this, a used copy, a new copy, going for 25 or $30, 800 that's insane. Now, unfortunately, they're all on sprues, <laughs> so you'll spend most of your adult life cutting them off and trimming them up, but there is a hell of a lot of them. So, unquestionably, this belongs on the Goober. There is tons of stuff in this. As far as the quality of the game, get back with us in about four to six months because we're going to have the Civilization... <laughs> Death match. <Yeah. laughs> I'm I'm looking forward to that. Cool. The game sommelier, or right game, right crowd. Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal, the game sommelier finds the right game for any crowd, age, experience, or personality. Each week, one of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right, the honor, to be called the Game Sommelier. Here's Dave with this week's challenge. Okay, welcome to the Game Sommelier. A quick reminder as to Stephen's challenge, or the challenge that has been put to Stephen by not myself, but by one of our listeners, Taylor Allman. If everybody will remember, the challenge was for Stephen was to find five games that can convert an avid video gamer into an avid board gamer. <laughs> and as we remember, Taylor professed himself to be the avid video gamer, so hopefully these games will turn you around. <laughs> I hope so. Well, this, this was a good challenge. I like this one. Um, it, was, it provided more challenge in that, to me... There are as many kinds of video and computer games as there are board and card games. So I think this should come as no surprise since digital games have grown out of the many different kinds of physical games that are out there. You know, as you were just talking about with, with Civilization, how many of the genres kind of have grown out of, oh, hey, we could right. make a vi video game version of that, but then it kind of becomes its own thing and develops into all these other things. My point being that an av avid video game person could be almost any kind of gamer, from a hardcore real-time strategy gamer to a first-person shooter gamer to arcade-style sports games to online puzzles to massively multiplayer online role-playing games. All those fit under the, the rubric of avid video gamer. Absolutely. So it kind of makes it hard to <laughs> right. find five games that are going to fit all of those different hats that an avid video gamer could could wear. So to that end, my picks try to address the broad spectrum of video games and video gamers. Cool. The games I selected are all visually interesting, not overly complex, and yet immersive in their own unique ways. I, it's a slippery slope toward board game geekdom, so each pick is the beginning of a branch, which will lead to games of greater complexity, abstraction, and depth. Awesome. So I've picked sort of five of the kind of classic video game genres today, okay. and I'm going to give you one pick in each of those ones. Uh, one of them I cheat, and I pick two just because I think you can go at it from two different angles, so I actually have six games. Okay. Um, but 
I'm not going to go into great detail in all the ins and outs of, of the game because I want to show you how if they like this one, here's here's sort of the tree that could lead them into even more cool. board game geekdom um, yeah. from there. So um, we'll start with sports games. You know, okay. somebody who likes like Madden um, right. 07 or things like that. To me, the easy transition to, <laughs> to board games is Battle Ball. Cool. Uh, 2003, Stephen Baker is the designer. Hasbro is the publisher. It's a two-player game. You can find it for about $20. You get a massive amount of these great little plastic football, football. miniatures. Um, the game is just but simple. You have a set of dice that are color-coded to the base of the different um, players. It's basically football with kind of a sci-fi twist to it. Each team has a little bit of differentiation in terms of the types of, of players and what they can do. It plays just extremely fast. Um, I, I really like it. I'm a huge football fan, and so it definitely appeals to me on that front. And I definitely think anybody who's interested in uh, video games uh, would find it a very easy transition because of the speed of play, and it's very visually interesting. Which I think right. any video gamer, you know, the visuals you have right. to you have to factor that in on some level because you have all the the luscious looks of most video games these days. Um, with the idea being, here's the little tree. You can go from battle ball. To Blood Bowl, which is you know sort Absolutely. of Battle Ball on steroids, Great Games Workshop. You have all kinds of different army building things, and then from there you can even go to really football nerdy with uh, Pizza Box Football, <laughs> which has no of the, none of the looks of the previous two, but is hardcore football with uh, cool dice mechanics, and it's just a great game. So there's uh, choice number one. Well, I definitely have to give you a thumbs up there because if you play Battle Ball and even even a, an inkling of interest, you're just going to salivate over Blood Bowl. Blood Bowl. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. I mean, I can't imagine. Try it. it might be a little expensive to get into, but <laughs> but I think that's an awesome pick. Thumbs up. Cool. So the next category of games would be real-time strategy games. Cool. And you've actually already made my pick for me. Mm. <laughs> it's pretty easy Pretty easy to go there. It's funny when you told me what game you were going to do because I was, I was just laughing inside <laughs> thinking, well, I'm not going to have to go into much detail. Sid Meier's Civilization, cool. such an obvious choice. Right. With, you know, it's, it's history of being a board game then a computer game and then back to board game. People who are familiar with the video game, it's just such an easy transition into that. I won't even bore you with going through the details of the game since we've already done that. To me, um, with Civilization, you could go from Civilization to Memoir 44 um, as your next step. It's kind of a different, it's more militaristic than than that, but a lot of those real-time strategy games are all war games at their heart. Um, And then from there, if you went from an from the other angle, not so militaristic, you could go to something like Puerto Rico, yep. which has that same kind of tree building of, you know, you're Absolutely. trying to get the different roles and fill, oops, crap, hit the microphone. Um, <laughs> you can find all the different levels of sort of complexity and strategy by starting with something like Civilization, which is a little complicated, but to me, the people that are already real-time strategy gamers exactly. aren't going to be put off by that no. level of complexity, so you don't mind kind of jumping in with both feet there. I think they want to see that same type of game, those same ideals ported over, and that's perfect. <laughs> okay. No, thumb two. Great. Puzzle games would be my, my next one. Cool. You know, I think those guys get get booted off to the side and not considered real gamers. And to me, 
they are gamers just as much as anybody Hell playing yeah. World of Warcraft, you know, 24 hours yep. a day. Just because they tend to like puzzle games doesn't make them any less of a gamer, in my opinion. So to fill that category of, of you know, maybe the your your grandma playing, you know, <laughs> bejeweled for hours exactly. and hours or whatever, I think... Text twist, what? <laughs> <laughs> I think Blockus um, would Absolutely. be a, a great choice. Uh, it was published in 2000, Bernard Tavishian, or I, I'm probably butchering his name, Educational Insights. Several people have the rights to publish this, so there's lots of different publishers. Educational Insights is the one that I'm most familiar with. Two to four players, easily available for $20. Beautiful, interesting, plastic, sort of Tetris-like pieces, right. which is the other thing. You know, you look at it, and it almost sort of looks like a board game version of Tetris. Absolutely. Uh, and it kind of plays a little bit like that in that you're, it's a very spatial oriented game with you trying to figure out how to fit your pieces in and they can only connect at the corners rather than the sides, which is a very cool mechanic, beautiful to look at and is challenging. Again, the little tree would be, uh, you could go block us to, uh, ricochet robot which would be another, you can play that even as solitaire kind of game to challenge yourself on the time that you can right. find the, the most moves to something like the GIPF project, exactly. which is so abstract <laughs> and out there that it's a slippery slope for someone who is into puzzles to go from, from that to, right. to there. So, No, that that's a great pick. I Blockus is so so awesome, and it is so closely, closely associated to those puzzle games that that's got to be thumb three. <laughs> Okay, um, let's go on to interactive role-playing cool. style games, you know, sort of maybe the, the World of Warcraft crowd. Um, right. Runebound. Um, 2004, Martin Wallace and Daryl Hardy are the designers. Fantasy Flight Games is the publisher. Two to six players, $32, you can find it. Um, great sort of talisman-esque game. You're each a fantasy character in this giant world. The most cool thing about this game is the number of expansions. You have that same quality where World of Warcraft can just sort of go on and on and on as long as you want to play it. You know, There's always something new for you to do. I think they're trying to capture a little bit of that with the bajillions of expansions which change the plot. You're basically trying to solve this sort of epic fantasy story or go through this epic fantasy story and they change the the chief players and antagonists with the different plot decks and there are a lot of different characters and tons of equipment and there's just so much replayability to it that you'd never ever ever play the same game twice um, with that so the the tree would be this is kind of a weird tree but it's more <laughs> from the interactive you know you're taking on a role if you start at something like runebound that's very familiar to them the next step might be something like bang, which might seem like a kind of whoop turn, <laughs> but to me, you're each, you know, you each have a different role right, in bang in the, the Western town or things like that. That if you, if you get the idea that you can do these kind of role playing things in a different Absolutely. setting, bang makes the next step. And then to me, the step after that would be something maybe like Lord of the Rings, which is more abstract, but is totally about cooperation and interaction that amongst exactly. all the people that it's just, there's that slippery slope again from one <laughs> straight to the other. So there's number four. Well, I know for a fact that I know. A handful of video gamers that have tried Roombound and are absolutely addicted, <laughs> and it's 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 the perfect pick because they just rave and rave about this game. So that's a four thumb straight up. <laughs> cool. Uh, just hopefully not straight up my booty. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how I am about booties. <laughs> 
So five, this is where I'm cheating and I'm picking two. Um, two games because they go at it from different angles. You got your Twitch games, your first person shooter, all about the oh, manual yeah. dexterity, you know, if yep. it moves, kill it kind of, <laughs> kind of game, but also kind of the fast paced arcade games right, in that cool. kind of style. So the first way of going at this is looking at manual dexterity games like Pitch Car, um, which is also known as Carabonde or Carbon. Right. I don't know how to pronounce it. 2004, Jean de Puel, Ferté, or Jean de Puel is the designer. Fairty is the publisher. Um, two to eight players, $30. You can find it. Um, I know we've discussed Carabonde in the past. It's basically a race game where you have little wooden car discs and this really cool track with little walls on it. And you try to flick your car around the track, bumping into other cars. Totally, if you're into kind of the ma- manual dexterity and speed, because you can even do like time trials with it. Um, you have that kind of aspect where it's it's physical because that to me if you're playing those twitch kind of games there's definitely a a visceral kind of you know aspect right. to those games and from pitch car you can go to things like Kinetigo, um okay. which is a little more abstract and is this magnetic sort of shuffleboard game to even more abstract classic game like skittles right um which is you know you pull the top and there's this uh, bo- big box and you're trying to knock over little things in there um, there's one way of going at the the Twitch gamers. Um, so I'll go on to my next one. Cool. You can you can give me a combined I'll, thumb I or will. two thumbs. I think I know where you're going. So yeah. So and then the other way is just traditional classic old board game that would deal with the kind of if it moves shoot it <laughs> kind of thing. Of course you have to go Doom the yeah. board game. I couldn't not go there because it's such an easy like with Civilization. Right. People who really like that. I mean. You don't even have to explain anything. They already know the basic setup. It's a scenario where you're trying to basically do exactly as the plot of Doom, you know, describes. You're going in and <laughs> killing as many exactly. aliens as you can. And the game is really stacked against you. It's really hard once you get into the scenarios. They really do a good job of kind of replicating that that video game experience in the three-dimensional world here in, in reality. Um, with the, the, the slippery slope being from Doom, you could go to something like Space Hulk, right. uh, which Absolutely. is the Games Workshop classic. Uh, a little more complex on the rules. It gets a little more war gamery. And the slippery slope from there being go just full bore. If you like that, you may end up being a Warhammer 40K player right. at some point just because that that slope is there <laughs> to, to that kind of large, epic scale. It's not fast-paced, but to me... The people who are into that kind of uh, that kind of genre, I could see getting into to the bigger, nastier kind of war games like that um, eventually. So there you go. There's the there's the two different ways cool. you can go at the the Twitch gamers. I I totally agree with you. I think the funny thing is that in your list there were three video games that had been <laughs> turned into board games. If that's not proof that video gamers are being lured away by yeah. these board games. There's obviously a market out there and so there's obviously people turning from video games. Not to, you know, say anything bad about video games, but there no. is a market for people wanting to um be able to enjoy that type of game they like in a social setting rather than yeah. you know, just clam shelled up in their you well, know, room. I just don't buy the whole um dichotomy that says 
uh, there are video gamers and then there are board gamers yeah. and never the twain shall meet. I think no. that's why our podcast is a podcast about games and the people who love them. We don't make the distinction because we like video games as much as the, the next guy or gal, but there's, there's a sort of crossover. They there's have, a slipstream right. between the two where you can have a foot in both camps. Bingo. There's always going to be fanboys on either side of the fence that are going to, you know, hurl rocks at the other side, but we're firmly <laughs> entrenched on that fence saying, right. Why can't you have the best of both worlds? You know, I, I think there's plenty of room for people to enjoy both, and and I think this kind of list is a good way of opening those doors and showing the light of day to both sides. Maybe I I think your list was great, and that's, hopefully that's five thumbs up. Unfortunately, my thumbs aren't the only important thumbs. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll find so out. I, I'm sure we'll hear very soon as to whether <laughs> Taylor agrees with your picks. Yep, and- send us send us an email, Taylor, <laughs> if you think I've I've missed the boat here. Um, but I, I'm pretty happy with this list. I think it's a good one. Yeah, I, I hope that he'll at least pick one or two off that list and give him a shot and, you know, let us see what he thinks. Yep. Are you uh, ready for your challenge? I was until you gave me that look. <laughs> well, I figured it was only fair since you gave me a listener challenge oh, that uh, I uh, turn, turn the tables on you. Yep. So this challenge comes from Scotty in Mississippi. We've had a couple emails okay. from Scotty. You might remember him. He has started a monthly game group called the Reservoir Board Gaming okay. Group. Absolutely. Um, to do different, um, and they do a different theme for their game game nights each month. Um, in fact, we suggested some pirate and cowboy games to him last last episode. So this January, I believe, he's planning on a wine and cheese themed game party. <laughs> so your challenge is to find five games for Scotty that will make his monthly game night a success. Keep in mind that there will be many first time or very new gamers in attendance, and that after a few glasses of the grape, <laughs> concentration might not be what it is when the night began. So. You you kind of get the idea of the kind of you know crowd that he's going for. Right. So wine and cheese party. Got to find five games that are guaranteed hits for him. And, that's uh, that's going to be fun. He's gonna he's gonna get the the thumbs just like me. So <laughs> that's a party that both you and I want to go to. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> wine cheese games. We're there. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> if we can make it to Mississippi, Scotty. You yeah, know? <laughs> exactly. That's that's very fun. Thank you, Scotty. That's going to be, hopefully I can pick some, I've got some things already spiking out of my hairless head. <laughs> Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. So welcome to the Mailbag. We've had a nice response again from our listeners, and let's just get right into it. Cool. Um, so Robin, our winner of the Backshelf Spotlight, <laughs> um, he wants to know uh, which podcast do we regularly listen to, and not necessarily board game-related podcasts, but what, what other podcasts do we listen to? So, Dave? Oh, man, I actually have to admit <laughs> to this? Yep. Okay. I am actually a huge fan of Disney, so I listen to several Disney World podcast. Nerd. Thank you very much. Not not I, I like Disney the cartoons, but I, I like to travel to Disney for some reason. I just my myself and my family enjoy <laughs> we enjoy going to Disney World. We've done it several times with Dave and his wife Roberta and it's it's a blast. <laughs> <laughs> so there you know it's make make fun of me, fine. Well so, do you name name the specific ones if you remember the names of the specific um, ones? I, I listen to um, there's a podcast called Netcot. There's one called Mouse Tunes. And something the magic. We'll put we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. I'll remember what it is. But I listen to those three, and there are lots of them out there. 
um, but only a few that actually give you the information mm-hmm. that you need if you're somebody who travel travels there. Yeah, so like frequently. the inside secrets on exactly. Disney stuff. Exactly. <laughs> so let's see. Mine, uh, my short list would include their two really good technology-related ones. Uh, many people may know about Twit. This Week in Tech is probably the most popular of the the technology-related ones, Leo Laporte and Patrick Norton and those guys. They actually are uh, the reason that this podcast exists. They definitely inspired me to to start this cool. this whole wacky, crazy <laughs> thing that we've started yeah, here. Look and look what you've gotten us into. <laughs> so thanks, Leo and Patrick, and, and I'm, I'm glad to, to pimp them all I can because <laughs> it's great. Uh, and that's just twit.tv. You'll find their, their um, podcast. Um, DLTV is Patrick Norton's. Uh, they have a video podcast as well as audio podcast version, and it's done twice a week. And it's sort of the latest, greatest technology news and gadgets and cool. everything on high-def TVs. And it's very <laughs> nerdly, but in a different way from the Disney nerds sitting across the table from me. (laughs) I I must confess that I actually tried a podcast that was supposed to teach you how to speak German. (laughs) It was the funniest damn thing I've ever seen in my life. It was a video podcast, (laughs) and the whole thing was teaching you German just by using these little finger dolls. (laughs) I can't even explain it, but... (laughs) You'll definitely have to tell me what the URL of that one is. We'll include that. It was painfully funny. Um, let's see, other ones, the other two that are high on my list right now are um, Film Spotting is a great movie-related podcast. I run a little not-for-profit group here in Indianapolis called the Indiana Film Society, so I'm big into movies, and I'm screenwriter, so it makes kind of a little sense that I'm into that. <laughs> but it's two guys in Chicago, and they talk about old movies as well as new movies and give their sort of reviews really, really good. They uh, To me, they do with movies what we're doing with the Spiel for Games. They're kind of giving... A great amount of attention to movies that might slip by your attention. Uh-huh. So film spotting is worth checking out. That's cool. And then lastly, uh, Boing Boing, which is an awesome <laughs> uh, blog. They actually have just started up a podcast in the last uh-huh. few months called Everything's Illuminated. And they get just really interesting all over the map, just like Boing Boing, the, uh-huh. the blog, has sort of all sorts of different links to a variety of things. Just interesting people from all different aspects of of life and science and and culture and things and and I would definitely very highly recommend. That sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, everything's illuminated. So cool. Those are ones definitely worth checking out um, if if you're into podcasts, which hopefully you are since you're listening yeah. to us. <laughs> Um, so on to the next one. We have a, a note from David in Los Angeles who had a great off-the-wall role-playing game suggestion. Get a load of this one, Dave. So this game is called, um, I'm quoting from, from David now, this one's called Shab Al-Hiri Roach. Um, in Roach, as you know, we'll shorten it to Roach for now, players are faculty members at Pemberton University set in 1920s-like Call of Cthulhu sort of era um, uh, in terms of the genre. Um, you're all trying to get tenure, and the game plays out an academic year with six set events, orientation, the spring musical, etc., you're all trying to gain status and to get one of the full-time jobs at the end of the year, so there's constant conflict between the players. Also, depending upon where you're sitting, you either love someone or hate them, and the person who loves hates you and vice versa. Trouble. <laughs> wow. <laughs> to make matters worse, now deceased members of the faculty are brought back from Egypt, um, have now brought back from Egypt the Shab al-Hiri Roach, which is bent on ruling the entire world. <laughs> so each round, a player gets a card with two sets of goals. One if they're normal, 
and one if they've agreed to swallow this weird cursed Egyptian roach, which will grant the player special special supernatural play, uh, powers. And it gets crazier from there. At the end of the game, one player will win, but you cannot win if you're currently roached. So you have to figure out some way of getting rid of this evil bug that you've swallowed in order to even win the game. Wow. I can't even begin to tell you how cool I think this is. Yeah, how, <laughs> how many heavy drugs must have been involved thinking, in coming up with this that is uh one of the most game. twisted things I've ever heard of. Where so, can we get it? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I know one of my friends, Kathy, is a gigantic uh, Call of Cthulhu fan. And the minute I tell her oh. about this, or if you're listening, Kathy, she's already probably online ordering exactly. it right now because that's just so totally <laughs> wow. up her alley. I'm, I'm sure we'll end up playing playing that pretty soon. So thanks, David, for bringing that to our attention, because we would never have noticed that it, one. Now that's something that I had totally missed. <laughs> wow. So, um, we also want to send out thanks to Jeff for posting a link to the spiel on basically a card shuffler post on the board game, boardgamegeek.com. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It right. just happened to coincide right when we were somebody else had sent us an email <laughs> about asking about card shufflers, so that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that was very cool. Thanks, Jeff. Um, Ankabut, our regular listener in Malaysia, he had a couple comments about card shuffling that I thought were interesting. He was telling us that um, his method, we talked about you know riffle shuffling and all that in our last mailbag segment, and he wanted us to know that... Um, the sort of normal way of shuffling, he's a big CCG car, collectible card game player, um, is to do sort of, he calls it a table shuffle. I'd call it kind of stack shuffling, where you take your cards and you separate them into different stacks and you achieve a greater amount of randomness and you don't have to worry about your cards getting damaged from doing right. the, the good old riffle shuffle. But that's just a, a word to the wise for Moncaboot. Cool. If anybody you know doesn't know about that or hasn't used that style shuffling, that's really good, especially if you're doing a collectible card game right. type things. Um, you had a note back from our first winner, right? Right, Seth. Sent us an email, obviously with his address, and was just, it's like, oh, I can't believe I won this. I finally won something. I never win anything. <laughs> so that was great to hear from Seth. And obviously, if you listen to their earlier segment, you find out that it might be another week before your dice get there. But trust me, when they get there, you'll they will be, be correct. <laughs> exactly. They won't be the, the spiral. The spiral. <laughs> so thanks for the email, Seth. Look for those dice here, hopefully, in a couple weeks. Um, lastly, on the mailbag, um, we've got Yoki in Sweden who wants me to broaden my role-playing, broaden my role-playing game horizons and check out some small press role-playing games. He writes, quote, you definitely should check out, uh, IndiePressRevolutions.com for what's new and exciting in role-playing. Seriously, give games such as Contenders, Inspectors, Spectres spelled like uh -huh. the poltergeist cool. Spectres, uh, and The Burning Wheel a try, and you'll never go back to your old way of role-playing gaming. So I'm very appreciative yeah. of that, because I'm aware of small plus press role-playing games, but there's just only so many hours in the day, right. and it's really good to have somebody recommend a couple titles to me and say, hey, check these out. I think these are cool, because I just wouldn't even know where to start. Right. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> other than, you know, given having... Great people out there, tell me. Exactly. <laughs> so, so obviously the mailbag is always open. So definitely, um, Stephen at thespiel.net or Dave at thespiel.net, and let us know what you're thinking, or if you you have comments on the podcast, or just other stuff you want us to know related to stuff, or yeah. other suggestions. You know, game sommelier challenges, 
we got exactly. the connection contest. No, nothing's off limits. You can just Anything let us have gamers it. are interested in, let us know. <laughs> We're interested in it yeah, too. Absolutely. A <laughs> um, couple housekeeping things before we put a lid on this episode. Um, a couple screw ups from, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Robin. Yeah, Robin Goodall, the programmers behind the occasional gamer Talisman website that we've told everybody about. Unfortunately, we made a couple mistakes last episode. So Talisman is open and ready for all players, but it's actually still in de- development. It doesn't currently include all of the expansion rules, but he's hoping that it will. Um, there's an easy to use bug report link. So if you encounter any problems, just click on that and let him know, and I'm sure they'll be right on top of it. Yeah. Um, and and it's we've actually done several turns now. Yep, we've got and our game going. Um, <laughs> it's it's absolutely a hoot. I love waiting for that little email. It's your turn. And yep, <laughs> get on there and get my bag of gold. And my yep. <laughs> we so say hello to uh, Scotty and Tom who Scotty are playing Tom, with us exactly. out there. So as, as soon as we get done with one game, I'm sure we'll start up another one. Right. So if anybody's interested, it's kind of just starting. So we haven't actually had a chance to get big and beat the hell out of each other. Yet, yeah, but yeah. I'm sure that's only a matter of time. <laughs> my goblin fanatic is gonna reign supreme. <laughs> but it's occasionalgamer.co.uk just to, to remind cool. people. Right. I'm sorry if I screwed that up last time, Rowan. <laughs> um, and lastly, uh, just a short reminder, we've got the Mono podcast feed going now. I'm going to keep that up for a couple weeks just to see what kind of uh, attention that gets. Um, so if anybody's interested in the smaller file sizes um, for the downloads for the Spiel, be aware that those are out there for your availability uh, for download right now. We I don't know whether I'll keep them permanently. That'll you vote with your mouse clicks. Exactly. And, um, thanks. Thanks again so much for listening. We have a blast doing the show, and, and it's good to know that you all are out there having having fun with us too. So I think uh, I think we've done that's, it, David. <laughs> so remember. Whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win. You just just have have to play. play. What was it? Um, Happy Gilmore. Just oh, yes. Okay, that's making it into the outtakes. <laughs> 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 <laughs>